Welcome to the Hey Chaplain podcast. My name is Jared Altick, and I'm a chaplain with the police department. Hey Chaplain is an officer wellness podcast produced for cops and covers topics like your career, your wellness, and law enforcement history and culture. On Hey Chaplain, you'll hear from dispatchers and federal agents, sheriffs, and U.S. Marshals, as well as the occasional district court judge viewing a cop's testimony from the bench. From the LAPD to Scotland Yard, the guests on Hey Chaplain share their hard-earned wisdom so the police officers everywhere can survive and thrive. The 1980 Norco shootout was an astonishing bank robbery turned running gun battle, turned manhunt, turned courtroom drama and circus. And like any critical incident, it had an effect on everyone involved. But throughout this story, I kept asking the same question. How are these officers doing now, 40 years after the deadly event? Author Peter Houlihan was in a unique position to help me answer those questions because he had interviewed almost everyone involved. And while he and I are not claiming to be the final word on someone else's mental health, I have a lot of respect for Peter's assessment as a fellow first responder who has been to his own share of traumatic calls, including ones you would know the names of. So here in part two of my interview with Peter, we discuss the effects of the narco participants both in the first few years and also decades later when he had a chance to speak to them directly for his book. We also talk a bit more about the writing and researching process. Here's Peter Houlihan. Norco was really a very modern critical incident. Modern weapons, modern vehicles, modern law enforcement, uh, with, with the exception that the law enforcement wasn't very well armed and that they didn't have cell phones. And, you know, other than that, it could have happened last year. And so one interesting aspect of Norco is that it did happen 40 years ago. And so we get to see how it affected officers and departments, you know, both macro and micro. We get to see how it affected people over decades of time. So talk to me about how the police departments and the sheriff's departments handled PTSD in 1980. The concept of PTSD has been around for a long time, whether it's battle fatigue or shell shock, uh, but almost always attached to the military experience. 1980 was the first time the term post-traumatic stress disorder had appeared in the DSM-3, called the Reference Manual of uh, Mental mental Conditions, as they said, it, that used by psychiatrists. They were just then starting to understand the spectrum of conditions and situations and events that could cause post-traumatic stress disorder and the spectrum of uh, degrees to which it can be suffered. And they were really just then starting to apply it in a methodical and, and, and scientific way, if you would, within law enforcement organizations or organizations outside military. The agencies involved, they, all of them had something, but some of it was so such a throwback. Mostly they tried to hand these, and, and I understand this, hand the, the officers off to the field of psychology. So many, like the Riverside Sheriffs, what they would do is they would refer someone to a psychologist. 
that they had on retainer. Now, that is very appropriate. Mm -hmm. What they did not have and what most law enforcement did not have were these uh, critical incident stress debriefings, as we call them today. You know, a a debriefing to sit down and see how everyone's doing and, you know, one-on-one or even in a group. That was not very common. You also had like Riverside City. Uh, the guy said, "If I have an officer who's having a problem, I uh, I, I put him on medical discharge." <laughs> Just kind of like get rid of him. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's that's it. I mean, I think he. He wasn't trying to be mean. He just like, I don't know. And, uh, but I'll tell you, so Riverside was, was, did not have much in place. They did have uh, uh, help available in, in psychologists who did work in this area. San Bernardino County Sheriff's Office was the most advanced or at least had started in on the, on the issue, and which is really kind of funny because uh, it's surprising because that San Bernardino is known as a bunch of brawlers and gunslingers. I mean, they call that Cow County. Um, they were a real rough and tumble force. And then, they, like I said, they had Frank Bland as their as their sheriff, who was a compassionate yeah. guy, but he's Mr. A, Mr. Iwo Jima. Yeah, he's yeah. a real. Uh, an old school guy. And he put a guy named Floyd Tidwell on the issue. And the reason was very pragmatic. They were having officers having heart attacks that were, you know, going on disability where it couldn't show up. So this was impacting them on a very pragmatic level. And then, of course, suicides, you know, yeah. just uh, sure you are aware of that yeah. in particular, yeah. but all of us are, we who, who were looking at the book and things like but, that. But it is interesting that, that San Bernardino is going to be on the cutting edge and really uh, ahead of their time in dealing with with PTSD among police officers and where Riverside and maybe specifically Riverside City because one of the characters transfers over from the police from the uh, sheriff's office to the police department and and it it frankly doesn't go very well and, yeah. and there's an attitude of well if you if you have any kind of mental health problems whatever we might call it we'd rather just be rid of you and and that only incentivizes people hiding it and so it was it was a vicious cycle of this is not going well and there were officers involved in norco who were probably going to have long careers in law enforcement but that single traumatic event derailed their careers Certainly. And a lot of it was because they did not understand what was happening to them. One thing that San Bernardino did, which is so critical and something we should all remember now, as you know, I'm involved with the fire department. So we did EMS. So we see it as well is uh, make this stuff mandatory. Don't put it in the hands of, of the officer or the EMT to ask for help. If you have a critical incident, you, and this is what San Bernardino sheriffs did is they called a, a, a critical incident stress debriefing. They invited the other law enforcement agencies involved. So this ended up being 50 people who were involved, 50 officers, deputies um, involved. And they made it mandatory for their people. And then they say, and you are going to go talk to a psychologist that we have. It it took it off the officer. So the officer did not have to um, uh, ask for this sort of help. And the officer didn't have to make the calculus of, of is is asking for help going to hurt my career or hurt my standing with everybody else they didn't have a choice they had to go get help 
Yes, exactly. Um, so they, they uh, any kind of stigma or anything was immediately taken off of them. In many ways, this was not a matter of agencies being behind the times. It's agencies versus individuals. Individuals were very much either reluctant or resistant to seek the help they needed. And uh, understand in 1980, the higher ranking officers all throughout were mostly, or many of them had combat experience. They were out of Korea or out of Vietnam. You know, they're like, really in Riverside, we're going to, you know, you're you're having a bad experience in Riverside. You know, you weren't, I was on Iwo Jima or, you know, uh, Hamburger Hill or something. So, uh, and, and also the younger deputies realized that. They yep. were like, I, why, I'm going to go to that guy and I'm going to tell him I'm having a hard time because I uh, had to shoot a, a, a suspect. They just weren't going to do it. And then the, the stigma. And it was very much, very much. It was, if you seek help, you are showing weakness. Yep. That was literally, you know, so you could put in whatever policy you wanted. But if the attitude and the side you know, water cooler talk or the, you know, one guy said, uh, you know, if you ask, if you ask for help, you are going to find yourself on the rubber gun squad pretty quickly, yeah. which means you're going to be riding a desk. Yeah, we're going to take you away from the part of the job you love. And we're going to communicate to you that you're not part of us anymore because you're no longer trustworthy. Yeah, there's there's a lot of negatives there that are going to prevent the average officer from asking for, for help. So. Yeah, and then, and making it mandatory is something I think law enforcement understands and is critical for anyone who's making these decisions within their organization. Make it mandatory. That was the that was the absolute game changer over in San Bernardino. Over time, the deputies and the officers involved had different types of experiences, and they dealt with it in different ways, and they had different sort of impact upon their lives and lasting in various degrees. Most of them have come to some sort of understanding with the event itself. There was also an officer who was killed. And of course, that puts a whole nother element within the psychological uh, experience of this. Many of them dropped out of law enforcement. One, uh, they said he just can't, can't get over Norco. He was going up and stop when he do traffic stops, he was carrying his shotgun up to the car. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, others were just fell into depression or became, uh, oppositional or, uh, you know, um, hard to deal with on yeah. the force. And, and they were forced to, they, some were forced into medical retirement. Uh, the, all three officers who engaged in that firefight in front of the, uh, in front of the bank within, well, two of them within four years were out of law enforcement. And then the last one, I think about six or seven, was also out of law enforcement, all due to uh, the impact of, of Norco due to it. And they're, they're tough, rough and tumble guys. These are not guys who are trying to game the system or anything like that. They struggle. Now, you were able to talk to several of these officers and other people involved 30 plus years later, you know, almost 40 years later. How do you feel like they were doing? I mean, did did most of them come to a place where they were at peace with it, uh, even if it interrupted their career or changed their career? How do you feel most of them were doing? I only saw a real bitterness and someone who seemed to be very much struggling with it or at least going through it. One individual specifically. He had been very successful in his life and he is a happy guy, but he still harbors a tremendous amount of anger 
over that incident. The rest have come to some sort of understanding with it on some level. Uh, They do not seem to be tortured by it, but um, there is a sadness. But one thing that's very telling is they would all become emotional when talking about it. Hmm. I found that most of the people intimately involved in this event had some good perspective on it. They dealt with their experiences differently. You know, they all had different experiences and uh, they dealt with them differently and they got different levels of help. 40 years later, most had moved on with their lives. But one thing that's very telling about Norco is there was very little bravado when they spoke about Norco. Uh, It was they were it was an emotional thing for all of them to relive it and to talk about it. And I was surprised at the number uh, that freely volunteered how terrified they were at the time. Mm. You know, when they speak about Norco, they speak about the sound of of bullets hitting their vehicle, tearing through the uh, engine compartment, you know, coming through the dashboard, uh, catching a fragment here, the terror of suddenly coming head to head with with these weapons. That remains... There is no doubt that remains within them and Norco remains within them profoundly, Hmm. but they most have come to some sort of understanding with it. What recommendations would you have? I mean, these, these individuals came through this and you talk to them, let's say 35 years later, but what if somebody's only five years removed from a critical incident? Do you have any recommendations for how they can be healthier 20 or 30 years later? Yes, from what I saw, I have an opinion, but but as as we know, I'm not I'm not an expert or formally trained. Well, you're you're, um, a, first, you're uh, a first responder, and you have you have interviewed first responders who were four decades after a really serious critical incident, and so you have some insight. And so so in your opinion, you know what kind of things can be done to to be healthier long term. Yes, I uh, I do have some perspective on it from from those those things. So, um, I, I, you know, I think that the responder involved uh, needs to respect and honor what they're feeling. Hmm. I know that sounds very <laughs> new age, new agey, or whatever, but you know, you just have to drop the stigma, and they need to uh, reach out for help. And all of this sounds sort of canned and boilerplate. On the agency side, again, making things mandatory and keep an eye on your guys. Uh, your reader may not know, but I'm 60 years old, so I am uh, a senior citizen and, a, and a, have a sort of a comes with a little bit of leadership with my EMTs at the volunteer fire department, which are a bunch of young guys, mostly women as well, female, male. You have to really keep an eye on them. Watch your guys, and then you know you you, you just say, hey. You know, have your resources set up so there's somewhere they go. You don't just say, hey, you should talk to somebody. Yeah. You know, you, you, write the, you write the phone number on a piece of paper and you hand it to them and say, this person's going to be expecting your call. It may be you just need a conversation or two. It may be that you just need to get a perspective on one small element of your experience. Or it may be that you need to make some big changes yeah. to to acknowledge it is, and, uh, and to just – see what you can do about it and, you know, go from there, take some steps. That's excellent. Well, the book is called Norco 80. The author is Peter Houlihan. And I really was surprised by your book. I enjoyed it uh, even more than I was expecting. Very well crafted. It is very compelling front to back. 
and I really appreciate the work that you put into it. Five years of your life. I mean, you you really put a lot of work into to producing a great. I was going to say true crime book. I mean, I don't know if that's really the right genre or not, but it's a. It kind of gets put in that genre, but yeah. I, I, I hope I transcend that. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is not your not your normal thing. I mean, it's no, really a, it is. It's, it's a, a look at a lot of different things. Now, that's not to uh, say anything bad about the true crime world, but yeah, yeah, but but it, it's it's one part action, one part trial drama, all kinds of interesting follow up and insights. It, it, it's interesting even before the events. You do some background on on kind of the religious, you know, apocalyptic mindset of the individuals and why they were driven to think, well, you know, I'm justified in shooting at the cops and robbing a bank because the world's about to end. And, and that I wasn't expecting that it it was, it was just really good. I appreciated your book a ton. Well, oftentimes uh, criminals and bank robbers have different motivations, you know, than, than you would expect Um, the time and the place that that this incident, this event took place is 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 critical to understanding it. Yeah. I mean, 1980 is essentially the 1970s, and this is very this is Southern California, Los Angeles, and the the height of the uh, of the born again evangelical Christian movement was really the hotbed was Orange County, California. Calvary Chapel was was in there, and all different degrees of responsible and. Yeah. responsibility and but but you know one of it was the book of revelation the uh end of the world the ra- the rapture and all that that kind of uh thinking there's also a tremendous amount of doomsday scenarios yes. being bandied about yes. in the 70s the population bombs and, and, and nuclear war and that kind of, yes yep yeah, a lot of Absolutely. That. Nuclear war hanging over everything. Mixed in with drug culture and hippie culture and everything else it was it was quite the mix of of everything coming coming together. It certainly was. Well, that was fantastic. Like I said, thank you for your book. I hope people go out and buy a copy and and read it. It's it's really well done. The audio version is also really well done. I just hope that that people go out and and get themselves access to it. Chaplain, I appreciate that very much and I uh, thank you for having me on here. Absolutely. I appreciate Peter letting me put him on the spot about the long-term effects of the Norco shootout on those police officers. Peter's a researcher, an author, and a first responder himself, and I'm only a chaplain, so we're not claiming to be the final authority on the psychological wellness of these folks. But we are both deeply concerned about first responder wellness, generally speaking, and Peter has done more work than most to be well-informed on how the Norco shootout survivors have fared. As the years pass, our understanding of trauma and the lasting effects of critical incidences is going to improve. We're going to get better at debriefings and counseling and medical interventions. So if you're struggling with something, reach out and ask for help. There has never been a better time to actually be helped than right now. On the next episode of Hey Chaplain, we talked to Jay Warner Wallace about cold case investigations. Well, I think a lot of these teams that come up that do this work, they are they are looking for quick hits, you know, for quick uh, uh, resolution because there is so much pressure financially from the agency. Do something. I mean, if you if you're working a case for a year and you haven't produced a suspect, there's a good chance they're going to tell you to move on. And so, a lot yeah. of the first kind of things you look at are like, well, is there anything with new DNA technology we could just knock down quickly? 
Now, we just didn't happen to get lucky that way. I only have one case I ever solved with DNA. Hmm. So these are cases where we didn't have witnesses. If we would have had a witness back in the day, it would have got solved back in the day. Just a quick reminder, I don't receive any money to review somebody's book or give them a positive review. I've received emails from agents representing authors and other people selling products and they want me to do an interview and and promote their product and I just flatly say no to all of those. So when I do an interview about a book, I've gone out and I've bought the book, I've read the book, I've contacted the author, I've tried to draw out all of the information that I think would be particularly relevant to you as an LEO. And then if I recommend it or praise the book, it's because I actually mean it. And I'm doing that because I want this author to be rewarded for their hard work and for making a contribution that would help you. Again, not getting paid on the side, that's just not what you're gonna find here at Hey Chaplain. The views expressed here are the personal views of the host and our guest and do not necessarily represent the views of any law enforcement agency or its components. If you like this episode, please share it with a cop or someone who loves a cop. Thank you for listening to Hey Chaplain, and as always, pray for peace in our city. I liked in your book, too, as a religious person, I I was reading this book, and I'm not of the particular stripe that the the premillennial kind of apocalyptic kind of stuff that that's just not the type of church that I grew up yeah, in end times right but one of the things i noticed that i appreciated is that several times the the criminals would say revelations with an s at the end i know it's not and you left that in cuz cuz anybody who looks at sees the book of revelation it doesn't have an s at the end but no i think i but people I, do that's like a dialect thing you know yeah, I left it in when they were saying it, right? I, I, I but I did yep. it correctly, right? Otherwise, oh yeah, oh yes, yes, okay. <laughs> you, you did that perfectly. You did that perfectly, and I thought, wow, it's just one of those things. Just like the clip versus magazine, you know, or round versus bullet. I thought, wow, he's got them saying revelations with an S because I hear people. I grew up with people who said it that way, and it's kind of a not. I hate to say uneducated, but but it's not a very careful or precise way of talking about a book of the Bible. And it's funny, a lot of people, they'll say, you know, I'll, I'll ask, hey, what's your favorite book of the Bible? And they'll say Revelations with an S. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. you've told me a lot about yourself in one word. <laughs> and uh, some of these criminals were the same way. And so, no, that was it was really good. I, I Like I said, I'm not trying to flatter you or anything. I, I found a book that I liked. And as I read it, I liked it more, and so I'm happy to promote it. My podcast is not monetized. I don't make any money from this at all, but I'm happy to give support, and I want to help out, and I hope it does help you. Yeah, thank you so much. I really do appreciate that.